Good morning, Keystone. Good to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, we'll be continuing our series in Ephesians. We've got just a couple weeks left, uh, two more weeks after this morning, uh, to wrap up this series in the book of Ephesians. And, and this morning, in some ways, it's really kind of like part two of last week, as Paul continues to show what, what it means for us to kind of live in light of our identity and live in light of the gospel and what God has done for us. Uh, I want to ask, starting out this morning, what is the greatest or one of the greatest, one of the best commercials you've ever seen? Uh, You probably think maybe most recent past of what are the ones that stuck out to you or maybe some of the famous Super Bowl commercials, something classic like that. Uh, Well, in 1991, there was a commercial that came out uh, that's considered one of the best, if not the best, sports-related commercials. Uh, It was a commercial created by Gatorade called Be Like Mike. Be Like Mike. And even if you've never seen the commercial before, you've likely heard that phrase in your life because it's kind of become commonplace in our culture even since then. Uh, Unfortunately, both Michael Jordan and Gatorade did not respond to my email request to allow us permission to show the commercial this morning, so you don't get the video of it, you're stuck with my description of it, Uh, but we do have at least a picture of kind of what was in this commercial. It it shows uh, both highlights of Michael Jordan playing basketball and drinking Gatorade, and in the background is this kind of catchy song that gets stuck in your head if you listen to it says, sometimes I dream that he is me. You've got to see that's how I dream to be. I dream I move. I dream I groove like Mike. If I could be like Mike, like Mike. Oh, if I could be like Mike, be like Mike, be like Mike. Uh, It sounds a whole lot better when they're singing it in the commercial than when I'm saying it to you. So you can go watch it if you want. But this commercial captured the desire of every basketball player who grew up in the 90s, right? No one said, I want to be like Larry. It doesn't even rhyme. No, I want to be like Mike. I I want to shoot like Mike. I want to dribble like Mike. I want to dunk like Mike. I want to be like Mike. And it captures the desire in some way of every young athlete growing up who wants to be like someone who is much greater than them. It's the reality we mentioned last week just shortly, that we tend to seek to imitate those who we are most in awe of. In in Ephesians 5, Paul starts out the chapter with these words, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. That as God's children, through faith in Christ, as followers of Christ, we are called to be like God. The one who says, be holy, for I am holy. Just just stop and let that soak for a minute. That we're called to be like God. I mean, that, that is deeply challenging. Like we would have better luck playing basketball like Michael Jordan than being like God on our own strength. 
Thank goodness, as we'll see this morning, we aren't called to do this in our own strength. I mean, this is seriously challenging. And yet it's also a joyful privilege. I mean, think about what a privilege it would be just to spend an afternoon with Michael Jordan, learning from him some tips of how to play basketball like him. What a, what a greater privilege to be called God's children and to get to learn from our Father how to be like him as we live in this life. To, to imitate God is both a serious responsibility and a joyful privilege that we have as followers of Christ. That's, that's the big idea for this morning. To imitate God is both a serious responsibility and a joyful privilege the rest of Ephesians 5, 2 through 20, which we're going to read here in a moment, is really an exposition or explanation of that command of how we're called to be imitators of God as we live in this life, showing us th- three specific ways, I would say, or three headings that we're called to walk in love, walk in the light, and walk in dependence. And so let's read together in Ephesians 5, and then look at those three things in this passage. But let me pray before we do. Father, when we gather together on a Sunday morning, we want to gather to sit under your word. We want to hear you speak to us. God, we, we want to be reminded of what's true so that we might live like it's true. And yet, God, we know that that can't happen apart from your Holy Spirit at work this morning, which is why we call out to you every week in prayer, saying, please speak, please work, please minimize distractions, please silence Satan who who doesn't want your word to get through. And I pray that whatever you want us to hear this morning would hit and sink and soak into our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible." For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, 
because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, we're saying as God's children, we've got this serious responsibility and joyful privilege to be imitators of him. That's the main command in this passage, verse one. And then the rest of this passage is telling us what that involves or what that looks like, starting with this in verse two, that we are called to imitate God by walking in love. You just look back at verse two, it says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You might say, that sounds good. That's obvious. Walk in love. Let's move on to the next one. But we've got to stop and ask, well, what does it mean to walk in love? We can assume we know what love is, but our assumptions and our cultural ideas of love sometimes fog or create a fog around this command so that we don't actually even know what does it mean to walk in love? You might think of it in this way. If I told you this morning to start walking north, you, you probably have a good enough idea to say, okay, I think north is about that way. Uh, I'll head that way. But imagine if you are surrounded by fog so much that you can't even see your hand in front of your face, and I say, walk north. What, what do you and I need to be able to start walking north? Well, we need a, a compass that would tell us which way is north. In the same way, we need a compass that would tell us, well, what does it mean to walk in love? And no, the compass is not my own heart or your own heart, as if we listen to our heart somehow, that will show us how to walk in love. Nor, nor is it simply whatever cultural ideas there may be surrounding love. I, I think that we are prone to think of love today in primarily one of two ways. Maybe not within the church, but maybe even with the church, within the church at some times. As romantic love and or affirmative love. That, that we might think of love only in terms of romantic love. That love in this sense is simply how I feel about someone else. Or, or in other ways, actually, how they make me feel. And so to say, I love you, means... You, I feel good about you, or you give me good feelings. Now, that's kind of minimizing in some ways, but you know what I mean. Or that we think of love primarily in terms of affirmative love. So one of the main marks of love becomes, are you willing, are you willing to affirm me in who I am, in the decisions I make, and in the lifestyle I'm going to live? And if you are, you love me, and if you aren't, then you hate me. God gives us a far better compass for what it means to walk in love in his word, a compass that centers on Christ because for the Christian, love is inseparable from Jesus. And so if we want to know what does it mean to imitate God as we walk in love, we look at Jesus and say, well, how did he love? And we, we see that pointed out even in this verse too, that Jesus' pattern of love is meant to be our pattern. Paul summarizes Jesus' love in verse two with these words, he gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
Christ-like love is simply this, sacrifice. His love was displayed in laying down and giving up what was his for us, even his own life. And we read then, if you jump to 1 John 3.16, I have it up on the screen, this is what it looks like for us to walk in love as well. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This, I think, is a review for probably many of us, but to imitate God by walking in love means not only that saying that I love someone else, but that I demonstrate that by we being willing to lay down and give up what is mine for their good. That we give up our time to listen to someone else. That we give up doing what we want to do for the sake of someone else and what they want to do. That we give up our energy to serve other people and meet their needs. That we give up our Sunday morning to serve others in the church. That we give up our money to meet the physical and spiritual needs of other people. We can apply this in all sorts of ways to our lives. That love means giving up, laying down what is mine for the sake of someone else. Second, we see Jesus' aim of love is also meant to be our aim. We read not only that he gave up his life in love, but it was a fragrant offering to God. What does that mean in verse 2 when it says it was a fragrant, fragrant offering to God? It means Jesus aim or his motive in loving us and laying down his life for us was ultimately to please and honor and glorify his father. Which means that our aim in loving others should be that God is pleased and glorified by our love. The aim of our love is not ultimately that we would feel good or look good or even that other people would feel good because of our love, although that may be a byproduct often. The aim of our love is, was God pleased and glorified by me loving this other person? That means a lot of things, but here's one. That means if our love ends up affirming another person in their sin, then it's not truly love because it's not pleasing and glorifying to God. Now, that's important for later in the sermon, so tuck that away in your mind, that if our love ends up affirming someone in their sin, it's not truly love because it's not pleasing and it's not glorifying to God. But then we we see thirdly, Jesus' love for me is meant to be our power. That's worded intentionally, not, not because I don't know the grammar there and that those don't match up. Because the power for sacrificial, joyful, God exalting love for other people is rooted in me being stunned that the Son of God gave up his life for me. Like that he shed his blood for me, like we just sung, that that my record of debt hung on his shoulders on the cross. Like he he did that for me. Oh, Oh God, keep us from becoming bored with the truth of the gospel that Jesus gave up his life for us at the cross. The more stunned we are by that, the more power and desire we'll have to love other people in our lives as well. Christians have both the serious responsibility and joyful privilege to imitate God by walking in love. And our love for God and others means we will take both sin and holiness seriously. That's what we can see in verses 3 through 14 as we look at them. 
seeing we are called to imitate God by walking in the light. This is where we're going to spend the large portion of our message this morning in these verses with this point. We we find this command at the center of verse 3 through 14 in verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Hear the identity piece there? This is who you were, but now this is who you are. Therefore, walk as children of light. And 1 John 1.5 connects this to imitating God, where John says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Light is this metaphor throughout the scriptures that most often refers to both holiness and truth, as well as the light of the gospel. And darkness is this metaphor that most often refers to sin and falsehood, as well as being blind to the light of the gospel. So what does it mean for us to imitate God who is light by walking in light? What does that mean? Like, we don't use these metaphors, so we've got to ask, what does that mean? What does that look like in our lives? Let's look together at three answers to that question that we can find in verses 3 through 14. First, it means to see sin how God sees it. To walk in darkness means to live in sin, to be blind to sin, to refuse to acknowledge sin, at least in my own life, and to refuse to repent from sin and turn from it. But to walk in light means to see sin how God sees it. It it means to see sexual immorality, which is any and every sexual thought and action outside the context of marriage between one man and one woman as sin, and to repent of it and turn from it, seek to fight against it. It means seeing covetousness or greed as sin, and to repent of it and fight against it. I think Richard Koken hits the nail on the head when he says about this, greed is an unrestrained desire for more money, more food, more property, or other material things. It makes us covetous or jealous or envious of what others do have and bitter about what we don't have. It is the great unconfessed sin of the Western middle class. And we could probably add there the Western church as well, if we're honest. However, more than pointing out and and talking about specific sins in this passage, I want to see what this passage has to say about how God sees sin so that we might see it in the same way and respond to it in that way. And we might see three things about how God sees sin from this passage. First, sin is unfitting for our identity. Notice in verses three through four, if you look there in your Bible, Paul says, sin must not be named. Or in other words, we we must not be known for sin because it isn't proper among the saints and it's out of place among us. That does not mean we will not fall to and struggle with sin as followers of Christ. We absolutely will to the day that we die. But it does mean we don't make peace with sin. That we don't live a lifestyle of sin or a pattern of sin and say, it's okay, it's no big deal, I'll let it go. Picture with me for a moment being in your house and seeing a mouse run across the floor of your living room. Can you picture that? 
What, what is your response in that moment? Do you say, oh, it's just a mouse. This is a big house. There's lots of room for this mouse to live in our house too, right? Or do you say, that mouse does not belong here. Grab the traps, get the poison. We're going to get that mouse because it does not belong in our house. I, I hope it's the latter, maybe not to that exaggerated extent, but like, you're not okay with it. It doesn't belong here. In the same way, sin does not belong in the life of a child of God. And so when we see it, which we will, our response should be to repent, turn from it, and fight against it, rather than saying it's no big deal in our lives. Second, we might see from God's vantage point, sin is empty and unsatisfying. That, that at the heart of sin, both sexual sin and greed and any other sin is idolatry. We can see that in verse 5. Paul's pointing out here the heart of sin, or the, the, the heart behind sin, is an attempt to find joy and satisfaction apart from God. Whether in sex or money or stuff or anything else that are good things that we end up misusing and worship instead of God. And God says, those things are empty. They won't satisfy you, so don't chase after them. And then thirdly, and this is the most offensive part to our ears, sin is deserving of God's wrath. I, I don't know that there is anything more offensive to say in our time than that phrase, that your sin and my sin is deserving of God's wrath. And yet it's right there in verses five and six of this passage. Like we just, we can't tiptoe around it unless you want your toe to get cut off. It's just right there. To brush sin off and say whether in our life or someone else's life that it's no big deal is the worst form of deceit because God's wrath is directed against sin. Sin is a direct attack, a full assault on God's goodness and God's glory, and so it rightfully deserves to be judged and punished. But, praise God, we know that he has made a way for us to avoid his wrath by providing a substitute in Christ who we take refuge in, that out of love God gave up his own son to take the wrath we deserve so that we never have to face it. That is really, really, really good news for everyone. But just stop there for a moment and think. If I say I believe God's anger was poured out on Jesus because of my sin, and then look at some sin in my own life and say, meh, it's no big deal. Everyone else does that as well. And God will ultimately forgive me because, well, that's what he's supposed to do after all, right? That, that's a problem. We aren't taking sin near, nearly as seriously as God does in that case. We're playing with fire. And this passage is a warning to all of us who might be tempted to live in that way or even are living in that way. Second, we see holiness how God sees it. See, sin how God sees it. To walk in the light also means to see holiness how God sees it. Pursuing holiness and obedience to God is so easily viewed in a negative light, even by Christians sometimes. 
right? Wouldn't we rather talk about how messy and broken our lives are than talk about how we're pursuing growing in holiness and Christ-likeness? But God saved us to make us holy. Remember, remember back in Ephesians 1:4, the beginning of the series, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Holiness is, bef- is fitting for our identity. P- pursuing holiness is not about becoming self-righteous because of how great we are. Rather, it's about living the life that God designed us to live, saved us to live, by grace, gives us grace to live, and one day that we will fully live when Christ returns. Holiness also brings joy. We're we're prone to think, I think we even believe this lie still as followers of Christ, prone to think that living a holy life and obeying God, whether with our sexuality or our money or our time or our words or whatever else, will make us miserable. Listen, that's not true. That is the oldest lie of Satan. The oldest lie of Satan simply ringing in our hearts and ears that says, if you obey God, he'll make you miserable. Man, that's such a lie. No, all across the pages of scripture, we see God gives us commands so that we might obey them and find joy in obeying them and knowing him. And yet we fail miserably, and so God saves us and then gives us grace so that we might obey them and find joy in obeying him. And then along with that, holiness is pleasing to God. Paul tells us to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord in verse 10. Have you thought lately, have we thought lately, how our sin displeases God, and yet how our pursuit of holiness, even when it's feeble and weak and stumbling, pleases God? No, no, we do not merit God's love and favor. That's not what we're saying. That is a free gift secured by Christ and is ours through faith. God's love for us does not wave or fall up and down based on how well we're behaving. It's secure in Christ. But yes, we can live every day in a way that either pleases God or doesn't please him. Now now we get to the third and perhaps most controversial part of walking in the light. Expose sin as an act of love. Expose sin as an act of love. This is what we're called to do in verses 11 through 14. In verse 11, Paul says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Take no part in sin, but instead expose sin. And this exposing sin as an act of love seems to apply both to those outside the church and how we relate to them, as well as inside the church and how we relate to one another. So so we first should ask, well, what does it look like to expose sin as an act of love with those outside the church? What does it look like to expose sin as an act of love in the lives of unbelievers? Now, that's a big question to ask, and I'm by no means going to answer that question fully. But let me just point out maybe two things that I think it does mean. First, this. It means we are called to speak honestly and thoughtfully about sin. 
That does not mean every time we act with an un, or interact with an unbeliever, we are reminding them that they are a sinner, okay? That does not mean simply posting articles on social media that condemn our favorite pet sim that we like to condemn. That does not mean that if we meet and get to know someone who's struggling with homosexuality or transgenderism or some other open sin, that our first response should be, hey, do you know that's a sin? So those are some things that I would say doesn't mean to expose sin as an act of love. But it does mean we must, as the people of God, be prepared and willing to speak honestly and thoughtfully about sin as an act of love. Andrew Walker in his book, The, the Transgender Debate, says this. He says, if I, affirm, if I affirm transgenderism, I am actually doing an unloving thing. I am withholding truth because I value my own reputation or my own friendships or my own comforts more than I value the eternal happiness of the person made in God's image who stands right in front of me. And you can apply that to any sin. We just draw that one out sometimes because of where our culture is and how the church responds at times. This is where the Christian understanding of love is in direct conflict with the cultural or the culture at large is understanding of love. We do not affirm sin. Rather, we, we call it what it is, sin. Even as we seek to welcome sinners into our lives, get to know them, hear their stories, love them, all with the hope of pointing them to Christ. The goal in exposing sin is not so that I can make someone feel bad and me feel good. It's that I might point them to Christ. We, we see this even in verse 14 where it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Exposing the darkness as an act of love also means, I would say, seeking to live a holy life that gives visible testimony to both the emptiness of sin and the joy of holiness. Because if the world sees Christians who are just like them, or who are miserable in their pursuit of holiness, why would the world ever desire to know the God that we proclaim to know? We, we shouldn't be surprised if and when that happens. There, there's so much more I think we could talk about here, and I, I would love to have your small group as you meet in the coming weeks talk about this question. What does it look like for Christians to expose sin as an act of love with those who don't know Christ. But we've got to get to the second question here with this and ask, what does it mean to expose sin as an act of love with other Christians? What does it look like to expose sin as an act of love within the church, with me and you? The, the answer, I think, is a little bit more straightforward and yet probably no less controversial or misunderstood because I think this is the answer. It looks like church discipline. Now, maybe when we hear that word, immediately what jumps to mind is thinking about power-hungry leaders who have hurt others in the church or just straight to excommunication, whatever other caricature we might have in our minds when it comes to that term. I think Jonathan Lehman gives a helpful definition of church discipline. He says, church discipline is the process of correcting sin 
in the life of the congregation and its members. Church discipline typically starts privately and informally, growing to include the whole church only when necessary. In its final formal and public stage, church discipline involves removing someone from membership in the church and participation in the Lord's table. And in another place, he says this, which I think is even better. Typically, this means starting with questions, not accusations, in order to make sure you understand correctly. All this is not just the pastor's job, but every member's job. When you and the other members of your church live this way, the vast majority of discipline in church will never, never travel beyond two or three other people. Church discipline in the church, both informally, which is when it probably most often happens, and formally, when it maybe seldom happens, is lovingly speaking up and confronting a fellow member of the church when we see sin in their life. It means not letting sin slide. It it means not justifying it. It means not saying, well, if they don't think it's a big deal, then I probably shouldn't say anything about it. And one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons we've come to associate church discipline as a negative or unloving thing is because we've bought into the cultural message about love too. That love only means to affirm other people. And it never does the hard work of confronting other people in love. Church discipline, whether it's done informally in our relationships with one another or formally by leaders of the church, should be, should be an act of love and an act of imitating God, our Father, who loves us so much he disciplines us. Hebrews 12, 6. You can jump there if you want, but it's up on the screen. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Think, think for a moment, if you have two young children in your house and you're their parent, and, and one of the other, one of the, maybe let's say the older child, sees the younger one reaching for a battery and then going to put the battery in his mouth. If the older child runs over and says, no, don't eat that, and grabs the battery from their hand, as a parent, you don't say, whoa, 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 that's my job. No, you, no you're actually happy that your heart for your child is reflected in, through, in and through your, the brother's heart for his sibling as well. In, in fact, you'd have more of an issue if, if the sibling just kind of stood there and said, I don't care, you can eat the battery, whatever, Right? Now, granted, if the older sibling in that process like whacks the younger one upside the head, well, then you've got a problem with that one too. Sadly, I think we've heard only or more stories of where people in the church have whacked someone upside the head as they've gone about trying to discipline. And we haven't heard the thousands of stories where a brother or sister in Christ has confronted another brother and sister in Christ in love in just a short conversation and kept that person from walking into sin and darkness and destruction. And there are probably far more of those stories. We just don't hear them often. Again, do you see what the goal of exposing sin is in this passage? Paul tells us in verse 13 and 14, if you look there again, 
We expose sin to draw people into the light of the gospel, whether for the first time or back into the light of the gospel. We expose sin in the unbelieving world in hope they will see their need for Jesus and repent and turn to him to faith. There there are three billion people living in darkness who've never heard the gospel before, like who desperately need to hear that God's wrath is directed against their sin, but God loves them so much that he sent his son to take their place. Who's going to shine a light in those dark places in hopes that people will come to the light? Or if it's exposing sin with each other in the church, we do that in hope that we will see the light repent and turn from sin. A wise pastor I know once said, join a local church when you're walking with Jesus so that if a day comes when you're not, someone will know you well enough, care about you enough, and be committed to you enough to speak to you, walk with you, and pray with you. Pastor Keith Rohr. And let me just say, as a pastor, I need this just as much as anyone else in here. Like, like if you see sin in my life, don't let it slide. Don't let it slide. Call it out in a gracious manner, just as you would want someone else to call it out in your life. But hold, hold me accountable. Shine a light. We all need this. It's part of why we so desperately need the church. And if we don't think we need it, we might be blind to just how powerful and deadly sin can still be for us. Thirdly, We're called to imitate God by walking in dependence on the Holy Spirit. See this in verses 15 through 20. That if we want to imitate God in this life, we cannot do that without living in dependence on the Holy Spirit. Because first of all, the Holy Spirit gives us wisdom for living a godly life. We're told in verses 15 through 17, you can look at them there in your Bible, look carefully then how you walk not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. If we want to live a godly life, living as wise, making the best use of our time and understanding the will of God, then we desperately need the spirit of God to apply the word of God to all of life. As we face all sorts of difficult things in our lives, like knowing how to love other people well, knowing how to live a holy life when that isn't always obvious, knowing how to confront other people in a loving manner, and so much more, do we think we can do those things in our own wisdom? Like, do we think I'm wise enough on my own to be able to do it? There's no way. The Christian life, the life of imitating God, cannot be lived apart from depending on God's spirit. It cannot be lived by depending on our own wisdom. I've told you before how several years ago we we bought a playground set from Costco, and it came in several boxes, and when we got it home, we opened it up, and and there was like probably between 750 to 1,000 different pieces in these boxes, including all the bolts. Like, I've never put together something in my life before with so many pieces. If I opened that box up and I thought, I can put this together without any reference to the guide that's included, I would have been a fool and made a mess. 
if I think or you think I can live a godly life in the midst of all the complexities of this life on my own wisdom, I'm a fool. And I would guess every single Christian here agrees with that. But how often, how often are we calling out to God's spirit to lead and guide us? And that's a convicting question because I'd have to answer not very often. The Holy Spirit also gives us power for living a godly life. Like, do, do we think, do we really think deep down, we can live a godly life on our own power, sacrificially loving other people, saying no to sin, yes to holy lives? If the answer is no, why aren't we more desperate for calling out to God to empower us through spirit? Do, do we really, like really deep down believe the Holy Spirit can give us the power to imitate God and live a godly life? If the answer is yes, then does the frequency and fervency of our prayers match that? We cannot overcome pornography or any other sexual sin in our own strength and power. We're kidding ourselves if we think we can. We desperately need God's spirit and his power. We cannot see greed lose its grip on our lives so that we live with generous abandon on our own strength and power. We're kidding ourselves if we think we can. We desperately need God's power and his spirit to do that. We cannot love other people sacrificially in a way that pleases God on our own power and strength. We desperately need God's power through his spirit. We, we cannot, on our own power, cause people to see the light and repent of sin. We desperately need God's spirit. And if that's true, then our response should be what Paul hits on in verse 18. Seek to be filled with the spirit. This is where Paul turns to verse 18 saying, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. He says, don't get drunk with wine because that will influence us, influence us in the opposite direction of godliness. Rather, be filled with the Spirit because he's the one who gives us the wisdom and power to imitate God in our lives. Go back with me for a moment to the commercial I mentioned in the beginning, the Be Like Mike commercial. All the hot, do you, do you know what's involved in that commercial and what they're doing? All the highlights, if you watch it, are either of Michael Jordan doing something kind of incredible, like dunking or taking an incredible game-winning shot or whatever it might be, along with highlights intermixed or images intermixed of just a bottle of Gatorade or Michael Jordan drinking a cup of Gatorade. And the message is abundantly clear at the end of the commercial when it ends with these words. Be like Mike, period. Drink Gatorade, period. You want to be like Mike? Kyle, you want to shoot like Mike? You want to dribble like Mike? You want to dunk like Mike? Then drink Gatorade, and you too can be like Mike. Now, no one really believes that, right? But if I did really, truly believe that, then I would be drinking Gatorade all day long, right? Like I'd be chugging Gatorade. Give me a camelback with Gatorade and one of those things just in my mouth. Better yet, just hook me up to an IV that's pumping Gatorade into my veins if that's going to make me like Mike. If we really believe the Holy Spirit can give us both the wisdom and power to imitate God in our lives, then over and over and over again, we should say, God, fill me up. 
Fill me up. Give me more of your spirit so that I might live this life I'm called to live in Christ. Give me more of your power. Give me more of your wisdom. How does that happen? I think probably through all of God's means of grace he gives us, but especially through prayer, especially through us acknowledging our dependence and calling out, God, fill me with your spirit. What, what does Jesus say about prayer in Luke eleven thirteen? If you then, who are evil, know how to good, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give you good gifts? It actually says, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Yes, we believe that when we put our faith in Christ, the Spirit comes and lives in us in that moment. It's not like we have to pray something extra there. But the Bible also teaches that we should pray over and over again, God, give me more of your Spirit, more of the power of your Spirit that has been already purchased by Christ so that I might live for him. The, the words, God, I don't know what to do here. Like, I don't know what to do in this situation. I desperately need your spirit to lead and guide me. Should flow often and freely from our lips to God's ears if we want to be filled with the spirit and live a life of imitating God. The, the words, God, I don't have the power or ability to do this on my own. Like, I can't do it. Fill me with power through your spirit. Should flow often and freely from our lips to God's ears if we want to live a life that imitates God. And as we pray in this way, do you know what we're doing? We're living in line with our identity, like we've been saying. Because you know what Paul says in Ephesians 5.1? He says, imitate God, therefore, as beloved children. Do you know this is the only place in the New Testament that we're actually referred to as beloved children? Not just children, not just sons or daughters, but beloved children. Do you know where else God referred to someone as a beloved child? When he spoke from heaven about Jesus said, this is my son, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Do you know that through faith in Christ, those words are true of us on our best days and on our worst days. And as we fall back into that identity, we again call out to God as our father saying, fill me with your spirit that I might live a life that's pleasing to you. I, I, I want to conclude this morning just with this prayer from Scotty Smith as the worship team comes up. A prayer about us being filled with the Spirit. He says this, If we ask you for a fish, you won't give us a snake. If we ask you for an egg, you won't give us a scorpion. If we ask you for the Holy Spirit with confidence, we can anticipate that you will give us even more of the one with whom you have sealed us, through whom you indwell us, and by whom you are making us like Jesus. So we ask you, Father, give us the Spirit in abundance. We're tired of playing church, tired of being lukewarm, being petty, being bored, and boring one another being more preoccupied with our little stories of personal peace and affluence than with your cosmic story of reconciliation and restoration. Father, fill us with your spirit. Make us people who joyfully live lives, lives of holiness and love that imitate you so that the world might see the light of Christ shining in and 
through us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.